0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. John Vance, and on the telephone is Raymond Ibrahim. And Raymond is rather well-known. He's a Middle East and Islam specialist and author of Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christians. Uh, Raymond, it's great to have you with us today.
1: Hello, John. Hello, Dan. Um I'm very good to be with you.
0: Uh, Raymond, your book title certainly caught our eye. We hear, it seems frequently, of persecutions happening to the Christian church. Christians um, uh, severely getting beat up, um, being punished, being crucified even, being having their heads chopped off. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you came to know the information you do know, and and could you share some stories with us of what's going on?
1: Sure, Dan, I'd be happy to. Um, My own personal background, as I think you indicated, is I'm I'm born to uh, Coptic Christian parents who were born and raised in Egypt, and um, most people don't know this, of course, but Egypt, the oldest and most indigenous inhabitants were all Christians. And they're called Copts. In fact, the word Copt is just a corruption and a transliteration of the Greek word for Egyptian. So really, it just shows you how how Christian Egypt was. The word Egyptian was synonymous with Christian, or that's how it came down to us. At any rate, I was born and raised here, and because of my heritage, I um, grew up with an interest um, in the Middle East in general, and um, in the situation of Christian minorities and um, the religion of Islam in particular— so I've always grown up with that, and I also ended up um, in my studies in college focusing on that, um, on those topics. Um, I have a bachelor's and a, and a master's in history, and my, for example, my master's thesis was um, about one of the first military engagements between Christendom and Islamdom, as it was called before in the year 636. I also studied it at Catholic University. I took a few courses in Semitic languages and Islam and also at Georgetown University. I worked at the Library of Congress as a language reference specialist with Arabic and other languages at the Near East section of the Library of Congress. So you can say I have a, you know, personal and professional interest and background in this field. And in the last few years, I've uh, mostly just been working as a researcher and writer and as a fellow at a variety of uh, think tanks in the Middle East Forum, the uh, David Horowitz Freedom Center, um, the Gatestone Institute, and um, different, area, uh, different other organizations like Topic Solidarity and so forth. Um, so that's my background. Um, you'd like me to share some stories, you know, in a nutshell. I can just tell you that what's happening to Christians in, the, in, in not just the Middle East, um, it's kind of erroneous, we often say the Middle East or the Arab world, it's really in the Islamic world. In fact, what I'm going to describe is happening in various degrees in all around the Islamic world, including in nations that, you know, on the mainstream media are often presented as the face of moderate Islam, such as Malaysia or Indonesia. In Indonesia, just last month, uh, Muslims rioted, burned down one church, tried to burn down another, um, and and Christians tried to retaliate, Then even more Muslims rose, and, and Christians fled, some were killed. And then in the end the Indonesian supposedly secular government decided to appease the uh, the Muslims and shut down so far three other churches and they're planning on shutting approximately eight more. So this is this is the moderate Muslim nation. Um as far as you know, in the heart of the Islamic world, uh, you know, in the Middle East, as we were mentioning, my ancestral homeland Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Libya, um, all these nations, especially with the advent of so-called ISIS or the Islamic State, the most recent manifestation of the historic caliphate. Essentially, Christians um, are being persecuted in ways that are much worse than we know from history under the Roman Empire, and we know that that was pretty bad, and it's well documented the things that happened to Christians under, uh, you know, Diocletian, Nero, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, even the Russian patriarch recently said, and some would like to say he's exaggerating, but he's not, he said that the Christians in the Middle East today are suffering worse persecution than under a pagan Roman Empire. And this includes, as you mentioned earlier, things like crucifying them, beheading them, torturing them, enslaving them, raping them, selling them on, on slave markets, and of course the classic, giving them the option to either convert to Islam, which, which essentially means renouncing Christ and embracing the teachings of Muhammad and professing his prophet prophethood under Allah, and many Christians are resisting this, including children, and they're being tortured, they're being killed, they're being decapitated, they're being crucified. Um, Two young women in uh, Syria, Christian women, were actually taken out publicly and gang-raped because they would not renounce Christ, and then executed. An 11-year-old boy, same story, they had chopped his fingertips off, and then they beheaded him and crucified him and put a sign uh, saying, Infidel. And, of course, the stories go on and on. You'll you'll recall what happened to the Coptic Christians at the hands of the Islamic State in Libya. I think it was 21 Christians that they decapitated them. And in the videos, you can see them actually praying and calling on Christ and so forth. And then, I think a month or two after, or three, four months afterwards, um, maybe 30 Ethiopian Christians uh, suffered the same exact fate. So, you know, I, I gave you an example from what's considered a very moderate Muslim country, Indonesia, and I'm giving you an example from a very extreme manifestation of Islam, which is ISIS. But within that within that continuum, you have various degrees of, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia. You're not going to hear a lot of Christian persecution, but that's because they've nipped it in the bud. And you can't even have a single church. You can't have a Bible. You can't have a cross present. And you can't even meet in homes and pray. So, of course, there's not going to be persecution because they've already eliminated... The, uh, the, the ability to, to practice Christianity. Uh, but it's the same exact story, uh, you know, all of North Africa, Southwest Asia, and so forth. And a final point, just for historical context, again, I think a lot of Americans and Christians are unfamiliar with the fact that in the 7th century, when Islam came into existence um, under Muhammad, the, if you took what was then the Christian world, and at this point Christianity had been around for over 600 years, you took it, and if you look at what were called, you know, the Arab Conquest or the Islamic Conquest, and then later on the Ottoman Conquest, all of which, of course, if you take away the secular titles we give to them, Tophers, Mongols, Turks, Saracens, Moors, et cetera, they were all done under the banner of jihad, no differently than what the Islamic State is doing. But if you look at history, you'll find out that, and this is well-documented, two-thirds of what was once the heart of Christendom were conquered and are today called the Islamic world, casually. And these include the nations of Egypt and Libya, Tunisia, Syria, Morocco, Algeria, I'm giving them their modern names, portions of Iraq, Turkey, or Anatolia. But this was the heart of the Christian world, and now it, it became Islamic. And, in, you know, in history books and schools, you're not going to be told how it became Islamic. It became Islamic the exact same way that ISIS is spreading Islam and taking over. And history documents this. this is I'm talking about the primary historical text written in Arabic, Turkish, and Farsi, or Persian, by pious Muslims. They all made clear that all these lands were taken by the sword, that Christians and other non-Muslims were given the choice of, you know, renounce your faith, or live as what's called a bimni, and essentially a third-class citizen with virtually no rights, who has to pay an extortion tax called jizya, and so forth. And so through the centuries, all these nations eventually uh, became Islamic majority. And uh, so that's what's going on, for example, in Egypt. And that's and so to me the Islamic State and much of what we're seeing right now, even though the media and politicians and academics and so forth will try to portray it as some sort of aberration, in fact it's just a, it's just continuity of something that started almost 1,400 years ago.
2: Uh, Raymond, let me ask you particularly about Egypt. Um, Assisi has come to power of General and and has taken a uh, pretty difficult. Uh, posture against the the Muslim Brotherhood. Have things gotten better in Egypt for the Coptic Christians or not, since he came to power?
1: Well, I would say, sure, I would say under Sisi it's better. I would say Sisi, on the one hand, Sisi is a pious Muslim, uh, you know, which, if you're secular-minded, doesn't sound problematic. If you're a Christian, you can see the issues with that. On the other hand, he said very good and, in my opinion, unprecedented things for an Arab or a Muslim leader, such as publicly saying that we, as in Muslims, have problematic issues in our texts, which was a reference, I think, to the Quran and certainly uh, the other books of Islamic jurisprudence uh, as found in the Hadith Corpus and so forth. So he's said a lot of things which are good. He's allowed, for example, the aforementioned 21 Coptic Christians who were slaughtered in Libya. He's given permission to build a church uh, uh, named after a martyr a martyr church in the name of those cops, which has angered, of course, a lot of uh, Islamist types. So, you know, the things that he said and, and some measures are good, and but the problem, you know, is ultimately all these issues transcend any one figure, any one leader.
0: Um, yes. This
1: is not ultimately about Sisi. CC is a leader of a Muslim-majority nation, in fact, one of the nations that really is at the heart of the Islamist movement, and that has done more than probably any other than Saudi Arabia from a financial point of view, but has done more than any uh, to articulate the, um, the modern Islamist movements and ideology with people such as the Muslim Brotherhood, Sayyid Qutb, um, from the 50s and so forth. So, you know, Islamism and jihadism and that radical concept is well entrenched in Egypt. So one man uh, who professes to be a Muslim can only do so much, and this is why, for example, you still hear under his watch, Coptic Christians are being thrown in jail on the accusation that they blasphemed uh, against Islam. Mm -hmm. Um, Most recently, there's about three or four Christian youth, who I think they're teenagers or early 20s, who have been in jail because they made a video, and this I think is very telling, they made a, a cell phone video mocking ISIS, Um, And in it, 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 I guess they do, they make movements or say things that, of course, Muslims do. So they're in trouble now because they're mocking Islam. And I think this is telling because it just shows you how, even in Egypt, um, mocking ISIS has become one and the same with mocking Islam, even though everyone's trying to distance uh, the Islamic State. So, again, you know, uh, as a human, as a person, as a politician, he's definitely better than Morsi, the Muslim Mm -hmm. Brotherhood, and so forth. But, you know, it's the context, it's the culture, it's the society that he's dealing with, and there's only so much whether he's sincere or insincere that he can do to really ameliorate the situation for cops
2: Now, uh, one of the words you mentioned, and maybe the audience uh, might need some explanation, is the word demi, which is a, a, a status, quote, a protected status for Jews and Christians. Now, that protection, of course, uh, is an inferior status. They have a uh, a segregated life in a real sense the demis could you elaborate on that as it pertains to Egypt in particular today
1: uh sure the word demy um it's an arabic word and it, at its root it means someone or something that is blameworthy okay or or it, it, it connotes the concept of guilt um and then it also means that so in the context uh, you, you know it's it, what it ultimately uh, means from a legalistic point of view, as much as we as you said, uh, you may you may uh, under Islam uh, keep your religion if you're if you're a so-called person of the book, which has been defined often as Christians and Jews, but sometimes uh, Zoroastrians and so forth. And uh, but you must live according to a number of uh, uh, debilitations and really humiliations um, uh, in order to do this. And these include things like you can never build a new church, you can't even repair. A standing church. Uh, you cannot show a visible cross. You have to keep your cemeteries far, far away from Muslims. You can't wail for your dead. You can't have a Christian procession. So basically, it's very clearly from a modern 21st century point of view, it's, it's meant to humiliate and uh, delimit and suppress uh, non-Muslim religions. And then furthermore, there's a thing called izya, uh and this again is an Arabic word, and it's found in the Quran. In Quran, 929, or Surah 9, verse 29, which calls on Muslims to fight the people of the book, which we defined as Christians and Jews, until, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, until they either uphold Islam, or they pay jizya um, and feel themselves humbled and subdued, which, again, correlates with what I just described about being a dhimmi. But the jizya is an Arabic word that ultimately means substitute. So what they're doing is, uh, as a Christian or a Jew or so forth, you substitute, you give money instead of giving your life because according to Islam, your life is forfeit as an infidel. And so this is what Jizya was. Now, this existed historically all throughout the Islamic world, including, of course, Egypt, and it was eventually abolished around 1850 or 1856, thanks to the advent of colonial powers which actually um, defanged the Ottoman Empire and went into countries like Egypt and so forth and put an end to it. Um now it 's coming back and we 're seeing it, for example, the Islamic state is doing it it 's trying to collect it, but even more than Islamic state is doing it in a very literal fashion, but in a in a in a more informal fashion a phenomenon that exists all around the Islamic world is you find Muslims just finding it very uh, okay to plunder, rob Christians. Or to take them hostage and hold them for money and kill them if you don't if you, if you don't if you don't get the ransom that you want. And a lot of this, I believe, is rooted in this concept that the infidel, the non-Muslim, is fair game to profit off of. Especially now that we're not formally collecting jizya, because, for example, the Egyptian government is still, is not collecting jizya in this sense. But the final point I think is um, uh, about jizya and imitude uh, and this and so forth is the reason a lot of Americans and people are completely clueless about this has a lot to do with the academic departments, because they've completely whitewashed the meaning of these things. Not only have they made them look neutral, they've actually made them look positive. And so, for example, Georgetown University professor, who's very popular, well-known John Esposito, writes glowingly about jizya, as if it's this great... He makes it sound that if Christians pay jizya then Muslims were obligated to protect them. And he makes it sound like protect them from outside forces. As if some kind of Mongol are going to come, and the Muslims are going to, you know, assemble and protect the Christians? No. It was understood that it would protect them from Muslims themselves. It was basically extortion money. Pay up, and you'll be safe. But you won't get that from the academics, and you won't get that uh, in a lot of the mainstream media.
2: One of the things about John Esposito at Georgetown is that he gets money, uh, and the school does, uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia. So uh, if you want to understand him, uh, he knows which side his bread is buttered on, as we say. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, apparently he has watered down a whole lot of concepts that a few academics are beginning to criticize. Right. But he has a powerful position, and he's edited a lot of important works and given it that slant. So I'm glad you brought his name up. Sure. One other uh, thing, and maybe Dan will uh, ask you a couple of questions. Uh, This is attributed to what is called Salafist movements or movements in the world today that are going back and trying to emulate the first three uh, generations or uh, at least Muhammad and his companions and their friends trying to emulate that period. Could you discuss briefly the, the spirit of the founding of Islam? I think a lot of people think that that's entirely in the past. Uh, and that has no bearing today. But Islam was started in some ways uh, differently than almost any other religion in that Muhammad was not just a religious leader, he was also a general and a politician, all wrapped up in one.
1: Sure. As you say, Muhammad, uh, you, you know, there's. it's well known amongst Islamic scholars and uh, the so-called ulama, or, you know, the the the, sheikhs, the learned, knowledgeable ones of Islam – that there's two phases to Muhammad's career. The first phase, which is uh, the, the older phase, which begins in Mecca, uh, and and this actually also corresponds to the division of the Quran. In the Quran, you have two different groups of um, of, of uh, suras or chapters. Some are revealed, uh, so called revealed in Mecca, and others are revealed in Medina. Yet they're kind of um, they're they're not written in order. They're really it's kind of a hodgepodge how they're mixed. However. The message is fundamentally different. When he was in Mecca, he was, you may say, uh, a religious leader in the fashion of, uh, you know, the, the prophets of the Old Testament and so forth, who had a message. Uh, he was not a warrior. He was not combative. But a lot of this had to do with that, with the fact that he was weakened. He, only, he really, for several years, only had about a handful of followers, most of whom included family. And um, so all he did is just preach and so forth. Um, And this is where you get a lot of, actually, the so-called tolerant verses. For example, in the Quran, you get a verse that says, you have your religion, I have mine, and uh, there is no coercion in religion, and so forth. And, of course, Islamic apologists love to quote those verses. However, when Muhammad, and this is the second phase of his career, he eventually left Mecca and went to Medina and essentially founded a uh, polity there uh, of Muslims. And it's really, in fact... His going to Medina is considered year one of the Islamic calendar, which is 622 um, AD. And then the message fundamentally changed because he became stronger. He had a lot of followers, and he went on the war path. He himself uh, um, uh, participated in a number of raids uh, on the on the on uh, you know his his opponents, the Quraysh tribe of Mecca and others. And anyway, the verses now that came out became very hostile. And this is where you get all the verses that say, for example, 921, which I I mentioned about fighting the people of the book until they pay tribute or convert and feel themselves humbled and so forth. You get what's called the sword verse, which is 9-5, which is essentially open-ended verse that says, um, lay await or lay in siege wherever you find the polytheist or the infidel and kill him and attack him and take him hostage.
0: And there's a number of
1: these verses. And so... I think this is what's important to keep in mind. In in Islamic jurisprudence there's this concept of abrogation, which means that it has two meanings. Muslims today use it in two ways. One way is that the old the, the more recent verses and so called revelations from Medina, which happen to be the violent, powerful ones, take precedence because the older ones have been abrogated and the and the older ones, like we just said, were the peaceful ones. The other view, which is very similar, says that the whole Quran is applicable, but it depends on your situation. Therefore, if you are a Muslim, for instance, living in the West, and you feel outnumbered and weak, then you do preach tolerance, and you do say, you know, you have your religion and I have mine, and that there is no coercion. But once you become stronger, then you implement the Medina verses, uh, which is the versus verses, you know, the jihadi verses. And you see this happening all the time. Um, you know, I'll just give you one quick anecdote from Syria. Uh, 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 Christians, and as we know, have been persecuted pretty brut- uh, brutally over there. Uh, one and, uh, Several anecdotes come from Christian villages where they say how they lived with Sunni Muslims uh, side by side. They were like family. Um, the Christians helped the Sunnis and gave them food and, 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 and this for years. And, and this is under Assad, who, of course, was is a secular and is religiously tolerant, dictator or not. He's religiously secular. But then when the Islamic State entered those areas, the Christians say that their longtime neighbors <clears throat> immediately betrayed them, joined the Islamic State, and attacked the Christians, and in some cases killed them. And uh, you get this story all the time in Islamic countries, where you find um, you know, Muslims living side by side, peacefully, and then something happens, and they become uh, in, in, emboldened or stronger, and immediately their true colors show. And this actually is another doctrine in Islam known as taqayya, uh, which is basically dissemble your beliefs when you're weak, but when when you're strong, go on the warpath and so forth. So this, I think, is a, it, 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 I think sheds a lot of light on the nature of Muhammad uh, vis-a-vis, for example, an Old Testament prophet, which so many people like to liken him to erroneously.
2: The other thing that I would uh, mention there, it seems that in Islam, all that you've described, that there's a very strong allegiance. Uh, within Islam to each other, and they do revert back to this basic relationship of the Ummah, that is, the believers and the people, and they oppose all outside forces. So there is not really any integration possible, ultimately. And what we see taking place in Europe, and in America here, too, is there a real possibility of integration, ultimately, or is this kind of massive uh, feeling of uh, belonging to the Ummah or the people uh, so strong that it won't permit them to uh, integrate and uh, into Western societies. Uh, what do you think about those things?
1: Well, I would say it's it's the latter situation because, in fact, there's a fundamental teaching in Islam that uh, essentially preaches what you just said. And in Arabic, it's called uh, it's the doctrine of al-waleh barah which means the doctrine of loyalty and enmity. And it too is founded in the Quran. You have verses that say. Uh, to Muslims, O oh, you who believe, do not take for friends and allies, Jews and Christians. It actually names them. Um, for the believer is the friend of the believer. And, and this theme permeates the Quran and even more so the life of Muhammad. So really, what, much of what happened is, if, from a historical point of view, Arab culture, uh, before Islam came into being, is, of course, tribalistic. We know this. And what happened is, when Muhammad created Islam, the tribalistic component was added to it and now but it was no longer a tribe by kin or blood or whatever it became tribe it became the super tribe under the umbrella of the ummah which is the islamic polity which transcends uh, national lines linguistic lines and, and so forth and so you see this all the time and you know in america for example you've seen it repeatedly in the context of um these soldiers american muslim soldiers who just wig out at one point, and just turn on other Americans and start killing them. And it's often in the context that uh, I have in mind, for example, Nidal Hassan, or another fellow uh, by the name of Abdu-something, and there's others. And these soldiers were in America and, uh, and operating and, and considered you know, patriotic Americans and so forth. And, but when they found that they were going to be deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, they really rejected it, got angry, and this is especially the case with uh, Nidal Hassan, and he did the Fort Hood. Uh, attacks. And if you look at his writings, he justified it in this context of the doctrine of loyalty and enmity, which forbids Muslims from ever siding with the infidel against fellow Muslims, unless it's a ruse, as I mentioned in the concept of taqeya, which is, you know, you pretend to be helping, you lie, you deceive, and so forth. So uh, this is, uh, I think, the best way to look at it is, you know, if you want to look from a religious point of view, it may be helpful to see it As from a national point of view. If you want to consider Muslims around the world as a nationalistic concept, the ummah, and they just are loyal to each other because it's the Islamic nation. And they may come into other nations and operate to various degrees, but their loyalty fundamentally is to fellow Muslims and to Islam. And again, this isn't because... You know, I'm making it up. It's it's fully grounded in, in Islamic teaching and is an actual well-known doctrine, which anyone can look up, just Google Loyalty and Enmity. In fact, in my in one of my books, The Al-Qaeda Reader, where I translated a number of um, treatises written by Al-Qaeda, one of them is about this doctrine. It's called the lo- Loyalty and Enmity, and it's 60 pages, and it was written by um, Dr. Amin al-Zawahri, who happens to be the leader of Al-Qaeda at this present time, and it just has verse after verse, and hadith, or story of Muhammad after after story, demonstrating how Muslims must always side with each other against the infidel.
0: And today we're talking with Raymond Ibrahim. He's author of the book, Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christians. And Raymond, uh, if someone wants to get a copy of your book, how would they go about doing that?
1: Well, really the best way is probably just Amazon. Um, it's it's they're on Amazon, and I think that's also the uh, least expensive place to get it. Um, also, if they just come visit my website, which is RaymondIbrahim.com, all my articles and links to Amazon for my books and interviews and so forth, and you know, links to social media like Facebook are there.
0: Raymond Ibrahim, we want to thank you so much for joining us today here on A Plain Answer, along with John Vance. Thank you, fellas.
2: Thanks for having me, Dan and John. Glad to be
0: here. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.